Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is the 19th of April, 2023. Um, tomorrow is the 20th. And for those of you who don't know what happens on the 20th of April uh, on 420, it's International Cannabis Day, Weed Day, the marijuana holiday. And in celebration of that, there's a new book out um, by my guest, uh, Peter Grinspoon, and he has a new book out, Seeing Through the Smoke. It's a book about marijuana use. Um, and Peter is joining us from Boston, where he lives and teaches as a doctor. He is an MD. Peter, we've done a lot of shows on drugs one way or the other. We did one a couple of weeks ago with William Brewer, who has a new book out, uh, The Red Arrow. It's a, a novel that it explains how psychedelic therapy saved his life we did a show with carl hart i know you're familiar with his book he blurbed your book uh he has a best-selling book drug use for grown-ups so we've also done some more serious books on the destructive impact of drugs sam quinones for example came on the show last year talking about the least of us his book about fentanyl um tell me a little bit peter about cannabis in the context of all these different drugs, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a, an amateur when it comes to this thing. So how do we distinguish cannabis from fentanyl, from other kinds of psychedelics that William Brewer writes about? Where do you place it? Well, you know, those are, that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, in terms of the psychedelics, cannabis essentially is a psychedelic. It tends to have more psychedelic qualities at higher doses. If someone takes a puff at a dinner party, they're just going to feel a little bit euphoric, relaxed, and happy. If they take, you know, a huge brownie with like 200 milligrams, they're going to have a psychedelic experience. So cannabis has some overlap with the psychedelics. It also has some overlap with the opiates in the sense, like fentanyl, in the sense that it um, is very helpful for pain control. But the main difference between cannabis and fentanyl is that it's impossible to overdose on cannabis, whereas unfortunately, um, more than 100,000 lives have been lost in just, just this country alone due to fentanyl overdoses in the last 12 months. So cannabis is a medication that we've been using, humans have been using for, for, for thousands of years. Unfortunately, it was uh, caught up in the war on drugs. So it's been criminalized um, since the early 1970s which has really slowed down the research on the medicinal benefits and has resulted in 20 million completely unnecessary arrests just for cannabis possession. It's safer than alcohol. Nobody would argue that cannabis is more dangerous not than alcohol. Say, not that alcohol is particularly good for you or safe either. Is, there, is cannabis the same as marijuana? Yes, there are two different names. It always used to be called cannabis. Uh, for example, it was legal here in the late 1800s and early 1900s until... They made it illegal in 1937. It was a popular medication. And um, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, Henry Anslinger, waged a very racist war um, to get cannabis uh, criminalized, which he succeeded in doing. And part of that was to change the name to marijuana. It sounded a foreign, 
uh, sounding word that the crazy Mexican, the local weed that the Mexicans were using, and they exploited a lot of the same fears around the southern border that many politicians are exploiting today to help criminalize cannabis. So that was why it got changed from the name cannabis to the name marijuana. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, Peter, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, just above Haight-Ashbury, one of the old countercultural centers where you can still, if you go down in the evening, whiff cannabis or marijuana. You're talking to me from Boston. You're a, a doctor, a real MD. You, you contribute to Harvard, um, uh, Harvard, and you're also, uh, your day job is at Mass General. Um, you're not the kind of guy one would normally associate with a book about cannabis, marijuana. Why have you chosen? This is your second book on it. Why have you chosen to write so much about it? Well, when I was a kid, my older brother, Danny, unfortunately, fought a losing battle against childhood leukemia. Um, my parents illegally in the early 1970s, right at the beginning of Richard Nixon's war on drugs, procured cannabis for him. And I saw firsthand how it enabled him to hold down food. When he didn't use cannabis, he'd just be in his room barfing. And when he used cannabis, he was able to come down, eat, and play with his little brothers. It really helped him live and then eventually die with dignity. He died when I was about eight years old. You know, there's nothing more impactful than seeing the alleviation of, of uh, suffering in a family member. And this really uh, seared into me the, the potential of cannabis to help people way before I even decided to go to medical school. So I've been sort of in favor of the medicinal benefits since childhood. You also, your, your first book uh, was um, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. What, what, what's the history of your own particular addiction? <laughs> well, I've always taken a lot of drugs. I'm just kind of an adventurous person who, I guess, likes drugs or always had. And I was fine until I was very stressed out in a bad marriage, in medical school, working 100 hours a week. And then I tried my first opiate, Vicodin, which is similar to codeine and Percocet. And I became so euphoric that I literally spent the next 10 years of my life uh, from medical school into medical practice trying to procure more opiates. I just became so addicted to the point that in 2005, the state police and the DEA raided my office, charged me with three felony counts, and I actually lost my medical license for three years. So I know quite a bit about how to get addicted and actually unaddicted to opiates. Peter, there seems to be two standard arguments about uh, marijuana, cannabis. The first is that, as you suggested earlier, it's, it's, it's certainly less dangerous than alcohol, helps alleviate pain, that it's a mild, uh, a, 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 a mild stimulant, um, a, a mild um, psychedelic. Yeah, and on the other hand, the argument, and you must have heard this a million times before, I don't need to tell you, the other argument is perhaps cannabis, marijuana won't kill you, but once you begin, you're on the slippery slope to all kinds of opioids and heroin and other kinds of addiction. I know that you've already articulated your own position, but this, this second argument, the argument against it, is there any truth in it? Uh, no. Uh, it's called the gateway theory, and they were arguing that cannabis, people who initiate cannabis, that cause, causes people to move on to harder drugs like heroin. Um, what they actually have discovered is, is more the alcohol 
and the tobacco, then they move on to cannabis, and then they move on to other drugs. They called it the gateway theory. And even the 1999 Institute of Medicine report by the U.S. government, they are not flower children on cannabis. Even they said that there's no evidence for the gateway theory. And interestingly, and sort of ironically, many people are finding cannabis to be a gateway off of other addictions, such as opiate addiction or alcohol addiction. Um, the final thing I want to say is that a cannabis can be addictive. So I'm not saying the cannabis isn't addictive, but it's not a gateway drug to other harder drugs. Are there physiological reasons why some people get addicted and some people don't? Uh, from my own childhood, everyone, of course, dabbled with this. And most people, for one reason or other, moved on. But there's always the one in 10, the one in 20, who didn't move on and whose life remained centered around cannabis and sometimes harder drugs. Does this addiction and its impact on the body and on one's life and on the mind, is it physiological? Does it just depend from person to person? Well, yes, it depends from person to person. I mean, addiction depends from person to person anyways. Some people can drink a beer at a barbecue. Other people have one beer and the switch goes off and they just don't stop drinking. So I think it's sort of person dependent and drug dependent. Uh, people certainly get addicted to cannabis. I've seen many people uh, smoke their lives away. I, I help people with cannabis addiction. It's one of the things I feel like I'm really good at treating. Uh, with cannabis, it's complicated because in some ways it's helping them and in other ways it could be harming them. You know, they could be addicted to it, but it could also be helping with their pain, their anxiety, and their insomnia, which makes it even harder to get them off of it because they don't think, and you can't really say this is all bad. It's bad to be addicted, but the drug is helping you in some ways. So you've got to find other ways to meet these same needs. Well, you, you, you said earlier that you've seen some people smoke their lives away. What does that mean? Well, just sort of what you said, people dabble in it and most people move on. And then you have some patients or people, you know, usually men in their like uh, early 20s and they just smoke all the time. They're like bunkered in their parents' basement. They're not working. They've dropped out of school. And it's never just the cannabis. There's always some mental illness going on, be it like psychosis or severe depression or social anxiety. But the cannabis certainly makes it worse. And um, you know, there are many different definitions of addiction. I have a very simple one, continued use despite negative consequences. And these people are just using cannabis and it's harming them clearly to everybody. Anybody can see that and they're still using it. So I think cannabis definitely absolutely can be addictive. Now, how common a cannabis addiction is, um, has been very much exaggerated as part of one of the talking points for the war on drugs so it can be and is addictive, but it isn't nearly as addictive as it's been portrayed as being. The truth, as always, or as usual, the truth is somewhere in between. I love the title of the book, Peter. It's out tomorrow to mark uh, 20th of April, Cannabis Day, Seeing Through the Smug. The subtitle is A Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. But I wonder whether that truth has already been un untangled in Many states, I'm not sure what the situation is in Massachusetts, certainly in California, in Colorado, many Western states, uh, cannabis seems to have been normalized. Why do we need to untangle the truth? Hasn't, isn't that already happening? Well, it's, ha it's happening, but it's also we've got a really long way to go. And there's so much disagreement. Um, for example, uh, the psychiatrist just came out with a paper in the American Psychiatric Association Journal saying, Cannabis is not helpful and shouldn't be used to treat 
any psychiatric condition, including anxiety, depression, and PTSD. And we have tens of millions of Americans that are successfully, happily, productively using cannabis to treat uh, anxiety, depression, PTSD, these exa exact same conditions. Uh, you know, psychosis, you want to stay from away from cannabis. But there's such a huge gulf between what patients think about cannabis. And for example, I don't mean to pick on them, but for example, the psychiatrists think about cannabis. It sounds like you're talking about two entirely different plants. So sure, in California or in Massachusetts, uh, people tend to be very progressive about cannabis, and there might be less of a of a of a, a gulf between people's beliefs. But in you know Idaho, it's still illegal, and you can go to prison for years just for possession of cannabis. So in pockets, we've untangled some of this. But as a society, we're still really really polarized, and people can't even agree on some of the most basic facts about it. So I think there's quite a bit of untangling that we still have to do. Is the fundamental scientific division between medical doctors like yourself and psychologists, people experts in psychoses of one kind or another? We did a show yesterday with the author of the Atlantic magazine cover story for next month, which is called American Madness, which is the tragic story of his friend um, who, uh, who had schizophrenia, who grew up, who wasn't institutionalized and then ended up murdering his girlfriend. He argues that we need to be much tougher, so to speak, on institutionalizing people with schizophrenia. Is there a, a huge gulf between, you know, I, this, these terms get thrown around so broadly in general, schizophrenia, psychosis, anxiety, we need to be more scientific, Peter, don't we, in terms of how we use these terms, depression. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but there are many different flavors of psychosis. And uh, certainly cannabis, in addition to alcohol, tobacco, other drugs, psychedelics, they can destabilize someone who has have um, any of the different types of psychosis. So we definitely want people with psychosis to avoid cannabis and all these other substances. But you raise a really interesting point. Um, the vantage point that a doctor has on the patients using cannabis really impacts his or her attitude on cannabis. As you alluded to, the pediatric psychiatrist to see the rare but very tragic cases of these young people, these teens or these young adults with psychosis who get derailed, cannabis being a factor, possibly a very important factor in derailing them, uh, they tend to be very against it. On the other hand, you look at the oncologist and they see their patients using it to keep their, like my brother Danny, when he was dying to like deal with the chemotherapy and to eat, to maintain their weight for the pain from the cancer. It's hard to find an oncologist that's against cannabis. So right, but you're, you're, the, the case of your brother, Danny, it's a very sad story, but it's a no brainer. I mean, that's one extreme, isn't it? Well, uh, millions of people have, have cancer and, you know, it comes with pain. It comes with loss of appetite. The chemotherapy causes nausea, vomiting. I mean, I would say that there are probably like at least a million people in this country, adults that are using cannabis for um, cancer related uh, problems. So it's not that rare a case. It's rare that it's so tragic that it's a 16 year old that dies, but so many people have cancer and many other patient populations are finding it really helpful. The elderly, uh, the older Americans are another population that are, are adopting it very quickly because they're finding that it's less toxic than many of the other, all the other crap we give them for pain and for sleep and for all their, their spasms and, and this and that, uh, they're finding cannabis to be a lot more gentle. So, you know, it's really um, growing in popularity. 94% uh, 
of Americans currently support the legal access to medical marijuana. And, you know, 94% of Americans probably believe that taxes should be cut. That doesn't necessarily make it. I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say, come up with something else that 94% of Americans. Yeah. You probably did. (laughs) Um, uh, Peter, what about parents? What advice would you give parents who, who come to you and say, my 16 year old, my 17 year old claims that they need, marijuana because they're anxious because they're depressed because it enables them to get through the day how how, how, what advice do you give parents on this because you don't always give kids what you want kids would like all sorts of things which we as parents don't give them yeah well there are a number of reasons why we're against the use of cannabis in teenagers obviously not if they're dying like my brother or if they have some disease that might really be helped by it like autism there's some interesting new data But for like your average teenager, uh, first of all, we don't want them using cannabis because there's very good data that it could harm the teenage brain, Mm. particularly used before age 18, uh, especially before age 16. You know, for an adult that uses it, it's not going to harm your brain. But if you're 15, it really might harm it. So there's a- How? How does it harm your brain if you're 15? Well, the brain is very vulnerable. It's vulnerable to other drugs. It's vulnerable to alcohol and it's vulnerable to cannabis. It's just forming. And all these connections are being made. All these other connections are being trimmed down. And cannabis, just like alcohol and all these other drugs, can really interfere with that. So it can harm kids. I I think this has been a little bit blown out of proportion. You know, remember we had crack babies. Then it turned out that there's no such thing as crack babies. It was just like stigma and racism. I mean, people scare people about cannabis and teenage use because they don't want teenagers using it because it's not good for them. But nothing awful happens. But the other thing is, Teenagers are more susceptible to getting addicted to cannabis than adults are because they learn to treat their boredom, their anger, their loneliness, their discomfort with a drug by taking a couple of hits off your vape pen instead of learning how to self-soothe, to meditate, to, to play a sport, to ask a friend for help. They don't learn the coping mechanism. So it's bad for teenagers biologically, but it's also bad for them sort of psychologically. At the same time, teenagers are programmed to take risks and to seek out novelty and excitement. And cannabis does provide novelty and excitement because it magnifies all your senses. I mean, you know, there's not a big secret that it's really fun. So it's a very difficult thing to convince teenagers who are not great at thinking of future consequences not to use cannabis. The slogan that we use is just say wait. There is no hangover in the same way to it as there is for alcohol. Is that fair? Uh, unless you use a very heavy amount, if you have like two puffs at a dinner party, no hangover. If you smoke like six joints till four in the morning, you're going to be pretty brain dead the next day. But generally speaking, uh, people are switching from alcohol to cannabis for a variety of reasons, including there aren't any calories unless you eat all the Doritos in the East coast. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't, um, alcohol, the more we learn about alcohol, the more dangerous we understand. Yeah, alcohol is 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 the new marijuana perhaps whereas uh, marijuana is the new alcohol um what about tobacco you've mentioned that a couple of times highly addictive how does that play in are you suggesting that people use marijuana that they should do it uh independently of the use of 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 tobacco absolutely A, a very common way to use cannabis more common in europe than in here, very common in Europe. But a lot of kids do it here is they smoke like these blunts with um, 
alcohol, excuse me, with tobacco and cannabis in them together. And then you get addicted to the nicotine. And then you have a whole nother problem. You have this teenager and they're using the nicotine and they're using the cannabis and what's causing what. It makes things very complicated. But, you know, I'm a, I've been a primary care doctor, an adult medicine doctor for a quarter of a century. Uh, I hate uh, tobacco. I mean, I, I'm going to be the last person to endorse anybody smoking cigarettes or nicotine vapes for anything. I think it, nothing good comes out of it. I mean, I sort of half joke, you know, if you use a drug, it could be bad for you, but at least you have a good experience using the drug. I mean, what good comes from smoking a cigarette? Uh, not a big fan. If we were having this conversation, Peter, a hundred years ago, a uh, supporter of tobacco, of the tobacco industry might be making your arguments because there was very <laughs> little scientific evidence. Is it conceivable that new evidence will appear, new scientific research that suggests that marijuana isn't quite as good for you or not as 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 it, it's worse for you than you're than you're suggesting is the book closed from a scientific point of view no 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 the book is an ongoing it's this is an ongoing story that's going to be written for the next hundred years i i talk a lot about the harms and you know most sensible people say pregnant women breastfeeding women shouldn't use it people shouldn't use it before driving as i mentioned teens shouldn't use it well driving's and, a no-brainer isn't it absolutely and um you know the joke is that on a if you're drunk, you barrel through the red light, and if you're stoned on marijuana, you stop on the green light. Neither of which is particularly safe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, we, we need. Well, the, California um, drivers do that anyway, whether or not they're drunk. <laughs> but you know, we you know everybody should be in favor of research um, on cannabis, and you know most people are. We still have it because of the war on drugs in the most restrictive category, which says that it has no medical benefits. Schedule one of the Controlled Substance Act. And that it has, quote, a high abuse liability, neither of which is true. It has like low to moderate abuse liability and it has tons of medical benefits. So uh, Biden has said he's going to reschedule it out of the most restrictive category. And honestly, most Republicans support that, too, because whether you're pro, anti or neutral about cannabis, you should be in favor of more cannabis research and having the government lock it up in the most restrictive category. Researchers can't even research the cannabis that you can get at a dispensary. They have to research this really awful cannabis that's grown by the government right now. And you can't prove any harms. You can't prove any benefits. You can't prove anything. So, you know, pretty much everybody's in favor of more research into cannabis. And yeah, we're going to be learning a lot more about the harms and a lot more about the benefits. And, you know, it's interesting that cannabis users and the cannabis proponents should want to learn about the harms. Uh, you know, they're so used to being sort of lied to the government about the harms because of the war on drugs. They just assume that any discussion about harms is a lie. But there are a lot of harms about cannabis. And again, we have to be humble and, uh, and open minded about learning new information about both harms and benefits. Peter, you've mentioned the war on drugs several times. You also brought up the Republicans and race. Um, it was Reagan, of course, and then Bush who championed the war on drugs. Hart's book, Carl Hart, who's an African-American academic, I think, at Columbia University, um, he talked or talked to me when he came on the show about drug use and racism um, in America. How much is this war on drugs when you see through the smoke is about something else? The hostility to drugs is one fear or form of racism, particularly against African-Americans? Well, first of all, I have to say I love that book, uh, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, that Carl Hart wrote. We'll have to book. watch the interview. He's a very cool guy. 
Yeah, you know, he's great. He's excellent. He spoke actually at a, he was a keynote speaker at a symposium we had for my dad, who was a fairly legendary cannabis scholar in his own right. But um, it was never criminalized due to health concerns. It was criminalized because of the racism and it was criminalized because of competing commercial interests. You know, the DuPonts, they wanted, they didn't want, they wanted petroleum-based products. And there's a whole history. More recently, uh, the pharmaceutical companies wanted to make their own cannabis-like uh, molecules and they didn't want people to just grow it on their own. So they opposed uh, cannabis legalization. The alcohol industry didn't want a competitor because people are switching from alcohol to cannabis. So a, a lot of it's racism and a lot of it's competing commercial interests. Uh, the main people arguing against criminalizing it in 1937 were the American Medical Association. It was a popular and common medicine. Doctors were very much in favor of it back then. Then they were sort of bludgeoned uh, by the government and they sort of just became sheep and then were against it. Now they're becoming in favor of it again, but they really haven't been in that helpful. The medical community has been sort of drifting with the political winds. But I would say like zero to one percent of it's been based on medical concerns and 99 to 100 percent has been based on either political expediency flat out racism or or competing commercial interests we're explaining we, we we're, we're circling around this racism thing how does it manifest itself in in terms of racism is it hostility to african-americans fear of african-americans well in several ways first of all it was like the mexicans and the african-american musicians who are using it and that's what they use to criminalize people to criminalize it they scared people this guy anslinger the head of the federal bureau of narcotics would come up working with Hearst and the whole media empire with these awful stories of like white women using cannabis with black men and then becoming, getting sexually assaulted. It is absolutely stuff that was so disgusting, completely fabricated. But then more recently, the racism component comes in. The fact that I mentioned earlier, there are 20 million arrests for cannabis use just for possession of cannabis over the last 50 years. Now, Blacks and whites use cannabis at the same rate, but the arrests have been four times higher in blacks yeah, than in yeah, whites. Yeah, that's it's that's disgraceful. I mean, it's beyond this. I don't know what word we use to describe beyond disgraceful, but it's it's shameful that that's the case. And what about the the crack cocaine division, which is a semantic one in some ways, and and again has this racial component does that well, has that, that worked the in the marijuana case too well i mean that was the same thing there was a hundred times greater penalty for crack cocaine which blacks which was an african-american drug right as opposed to like the cocaine you snort that whites use it absolutely ridiculous my my dad actually called called that out in the 1970s he was really ahead of his time in telling you on all this stuff but um yeah, absolutely i mean and you know there are these great books like the new jim crow about how it's this whole yeah we, we've done a lot of shows on on that sort of thing i mean how do you fill up uh the prisons with blacks who can do cheap labor if you don't have a war on drugs and you can't be arresting them for cocaine or marijuana that whole that whole vehicle of racial racial control falls apart so i i think racism is a huge part of it does this go back in some ways peter in your analysis to the arguments around prohibition which also had a strong racial component in the 1920s. Yeah, I mean, I don't know as much about that, but I, I, I think there was certainly a very like Victorian moralistic aspect to that. And they came to their senses pretty quickly after, what, 11 years, they realized 
that if people were just using it anyways, the only thing difference is they were poisoning themselves with moonshine, sort of like people these days poisoning themselves with fentanyl. I mean, if someone's addicted, they're going to use, why not give them a safe supply so that they're not going to die? I mean, have a heart, have some humanity. But yeah, I, I think there was a racial component to that, but I don't think it was as prominent as we've seen with the war on drugs. I mean, we weren't incarcerating um, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people getting needless arrests. I think that, you know, sort of the misery was was more broadly shared during uh, pro alcohol prohibition amongst different racial groups. In the early 1930s, Aldous Huxley wrote his famous dystopian novel, um, Brave New World, in which he imagined the future in which everyone was addicted to Soma, which was a, a marijuana-like drug that may not have been bad for you, but cheered you up and put you in a kind of mist. Is that something that we should be concerned with? Well, no, because marijuana isn't that addictive. As I mentioned before, it's very exaggerated how addictive it is. I mean, again, some people get addicted to it, but um, these are people but even that- Even if have... it's not addicting, even if it, even if it, and then I use this term carefully, although it's probably controversial in your mind, even if it separates you from reality, even if it manifests a kind of hyper-reality in terms of your consciousness, is that a good thing for us as humans? Well, you know, that's a complicated question. I mean, you read Michael Pollan's work and he points out that- Yeah, well, Pollan's just come out with a book. He's a Berkeley guy on, on psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, he is a Berkeley guy on psychedelics. He, um, he points out that very few societies, if any, have not used psychoactive substances. I mean, it's really amazing how casual we are about the caffeine that we all guzzle in the morning or the nicotine and the alcohol that's so socially accepted. So it's not like we don't use drugs. It's just what to me is hypocritical and sort of ironic is which drugs we call the good drugs, quote unquote, and which drugs we call the bad drugs. Like if you were my patient, I could prescribe you oxycodone for pain. But if you have heroin, which is virtually the same thing, it's like one little chemical group different, you can go to prison for five years. And like, why is oxycodone good and heroin so bad? It's just, it's very arbitrary which drugs we call good and which we call bad. And, and humans have always changed their consciousness. I mean, sure, if it's like China during the opium wars and like everybody's addicted to opium and nobody's doing anything and it's like decimating the economy, obviously the drug is causing a problem. But if it's just something that people need at the end of the day to give themselves a little bit of joy after working all day and they're exhausted and their muscles hurt and this doesn't cause any lasting harm, then what's the harm of that? So it sort of depends on the context. It also depends, I guess, on your sort of philosophy of like what's good for people and what's not good for people. Peter, your day job is as an MD at Mass General in Boston. You're, you're very familiar with the debates about the future of medicine. We've done a number of shows on those, one with Nathan Price, who has a new book out, The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. We also did one with a German writer, Harold Schmidt, uh, who has another book very similar, The End of Medicine as We Know It and Why Your Health Has a Future. How do you see in a more personalized, data-rich medical world, how could and should our use and perhaps abuse of, of, of marijuana be encouraged and controlled? Well, <clears throat> I think we're going to have a lot more information. I think we're going to 
learn which uh, genes cause schizophrenia, which genes cause cannabis addiction, or is there an overlap? What role is the cannabis playing in the psychosis? We're going to learn how to keep people healthier. We're going to learn what risk factors work synergistically with the cannabis to cause a problem. And we're going to learn how to protect people. We're going to learn, you know, if you use cannabis this way, this method is not going to be as addictive. It might, it won't be bad for your lungs. I think we're going to have so much more information and control. The thing I worry about, I'm a primary care doctor in an inner city clinic. Like my patients are really, really poor. They, a lot of them have to decide whether or not to decide to buy food or to buy medicine. Only 40% of them even speak English. So a lot of this stuff about like, uh, personalized medicine, I'm worried is just going to be yet another treatment for the for very wealthy. I'm very worried about that for psychedelics as well. And even for cannabis until we get health insurance to pay for it. So I'm great. I'm delighted that we're learning about genetics and we're um, honing our personalized medicine skills, but I really don't want it to be yet another treatment for the well-to-do. Uh, any of these advancements belong to all of us. And I want my my most impoverished patients to have just as much access to it is Bill Gates or Elon Musk. Yeah, it's a really important point out here in Silicon Valley. Uh, some people are talking about living forever or over 100 or 150. And those people will, will the, the Peter Thiels and the Elon Musks of the world. But everyone else are dying younger and younger. So we're seeing the disappearance of a middle, which is probably another conversation, Peter. Well, Interesting conversation, important conversation. You've got your book coming out tomorrow. I asked you at the beginning why it coming out on a Thursday rather than a Tuesday, and you said it's because of um, 420 being uh, international uh, marijuana holiday. Uh, you've got a party there, and I, I hope it's not going to be too wild, Peter. What's going to happen at this uh, party launch for your book? Well, a couple hundred people actually respond RSVP'd, so it's going to be big. I mean, that's big for me. And uh, we're going to have a band. Um, we're going to have speakers. Uh, there's going to be a big social justice component to it. And then there's going to be an after party at my house. Um, Are and, there going to be uh, some special cookies? Um, honestly, uh, I'm a big believer now that cannabis is legal in Massachusetts. You're going to see if I have a medical license tomorrow that it should be normalized. And the cannabis is going to be no more or no less uh, prominent than the alcohol at the party. There's going to be beer and wine. There's going to be a little bit of cannabis if people want it. I'm not in charge of procuring it. I'm a physician. They get really uptight about that. But um, it's, it's not going to be emphasized. It's not going to be um, it's not going to be uh, restricted. Um, it's you known under 21, obviously. And, you know, we're going to expect people to act like adults. We're not going to expect them to get really drunk and drive home. We're going to expect them not to get really stoned and drive home. We're just going to treat cannabis like the legal uh, alternative to alcohol that we now have in many states and allow adults to use it in a responsible manner. We better not give you a dress out, Peter, otherwise you're going to have an army of gay crashes. <laughs> uh, I don't think I should give my dress out. Um, but for the medical board or for all the other, the party will get too big as well. 